people of God, as we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we come to you and our hearts are cold. Warm them with your selfless love. Our hearts are sinful. Cleanse them with your precious blood. Our hearts are weak. Strengthen them with your joyous spirit. Our hearts are empty. Fill them with your divine presence. Heavenly Father, our hearts are yours. Possess them always and only for yourself. And Spirit of God, open our hearts and minds to hear your voice in the word. Empower us to believe, obey, and rest in all you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 13. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this evening. We've been considering uh, through the catechism in the evening service, and we've been taking some extended time uh, to think about Sabbath rest and what it means to enter God's rest. And so we're taking up the second part of an argument that's being made through the book of Hebrews about entering God's rest, and we come to the second part of this argument in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So I'll read from there, and then we'll consider this passage together. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Therefore, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith, with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, One of the things that we've been trying to do as we consider entering God's rest and consider particularly how the Sabbath day points us to that rest 
is kind of strip away all the bad associations that we have sometimes with talking about the Sabbath, that we only ever reflect on what you may not do, um, that we become sort of the fun police and you can't do anything fun on the Lord's Day. That's kind of how people can sometimes think of how we pursue, pursue this. And I think one of the reasons that there was so much said about what ought to be done and what ought not to be done on the Lord's Day is because they saw the importance of the Lord's Day as it functioned in the lives of God's people to really provide an opportunity for us to hear the things we need to hear from God's Word so that we enter the rest of God. Um, I think we all know how easily distracted we are. Um, sometimes boys and girls, when I pray the congregational prayer, you know, I tell you, I know it's a long prayer and I know it's hard to pay attention. Well, you know, for the first time in a while, I was sitting in the pew this morning when the congregational prayer was being prayed. For once, I wasn't the one praying it. And it was a reminder to me how you have to really pay attention to keep following along. And I think because people, we realize how easy it is for us to lose attention to the main thing. I think that's why people have been so persistent in the past about what the Lord's Day is for, to protect what we ought to do on the Lord's Day so that we don't miss that crucial message we need to empower us in living in this world. Because what was the the argument that began in chapter 3 about entering God's rest? It was the, the necessity of avoiding a repetition of the past. Being those people who heard the good news preached to them, who stood at the threshold of the promised land and failed to enter in. And that was really the first part of the argument. If we wanted to summarize what, what went on there, um, we would say that was, the, that was the basic message. Avoid a repetition of the past. Don't be like the wilderness generation who heard God's promises, failed to believe them, and were forbidden from entering rest because of unbelief. I think the argument takes a more sort of positive turn as it moves from considering that, that important aspect of avoiding the mistakes of the past to talking about appropriating the reality that's before us today. Uh, that's where the passage moves. Instead of just being a primarily a section about warning as chapter 3 was, chapter 4 has more of a note of hope and encouragement. Uh, the promise of entering rest still stands. Uh, So appropriate that reality. Uh, We're moving away from talking about the Old Testament Israel and the wilderness generation that missed the promise um, and failed to enter that rest. And now we're talking about the church as the Israel of God, as Paul calls it in Galatians 6.16, and reminding us that we too are in a pilgrimage in the wilderness with a promise of rest still standing open before us. We've not missed today, so be sure that we take hold of today um, to encourage the church to enter into the rest of God. If part one was avoid a repetition, then part two is appropriate the reality by faith in the promises of God. And how are we encouraged to do that in this passage? Well, first, by the promise of rest. Second, by the picture of rest. And finally, by the pursuit of rest. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. The promise of rest, the picture of rest, and the pursuit of rest. Now, what is the promise of rest? We talked about how the focus of our passage has shifted away from past failures and towards the present situation of the church 
on its pilgrimage through the world. And the very first thing we're given is a piece of very good news. As the passage begins, a piece of very good news that comes to the church of God. And what is that good news? The promise of entering his rest still stands. That the people who are hearing this word, uh, in one sense the book of Hebrews is a big sermon uh, put together, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying the people who are hearing this word have not missed their today. The promise of entering rest still stands open. Uh, We've not missed our today. They squandered their today. That was the sad fact about the wilderness generation. They squandered their chance. Their today came and missed it. But what is the, the piece of good news that confronts us here? For us, it's still today. For the church of God, we've not missed it. We've not missed the rest that still stands open. The promise of entering his rest still stands. And this good news has come to us as heirs of the promise in these last days from the Son of God himself. Right? There's there's a difference, even though the writer of Hebrews says, they heard the good news, we've heard the good news. What is the difference between them hearing the good news? From whom did they hear it? They heard it from men. They heard it from Moses. They heard it from Joshua and Caleb as they entreated the people not to be afraid to enter into the rest that God had promised. They had good news preached to them through the servants of God. We've had the good news preached to us through the Son of God. Right now, not a faithful servant in the Lord's house, but a son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. We've had the privilege of hearing the good news preached to us By the Son of God. It's been proclaimed to us by Him. And this great word has been proclaimed, the good news of the gospel, that those who believe enter into God's rest through faith in Jesus Christ. That promise still stands open to those who hear. That's good news. To know that we've not missed our today. That if you're If you are hearing the writer of Hebrews say these things, if you're hearing the Spirit of God say them tonight, it's not too late. Today is still the day of salvation. Anyone who hears the good news being proclaimed by the Son of God in His Spirit, in His Word, can say, I've not missed today. The promise of rest still stands open before me. That's good news. And what what is the writer of Hebrews driving home? That biblical truth that there has to be a connection between the good news coming and hearing it and believing it. Right? There's a vital connection between hearing the good news preached and believing the good news preached. Um, They heard it. They just didn't believe it. They didn't combine their hearing with faith. And we're being reminded of the crucial importance of not just receiving the good news, but hearing it and receiving it and doing what it calls you to do, which is putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who's presented in the Word. Um, That's in a sense what the people in the wilderness generation failed to do. They failed to put their trust in the promises they had heard. God said, I will bring you into the promised land and give you rest. 
And they failed to trust that. They failed to trust that God would do what he'd promised to do. They didn't believe him. And they didn't believe in him. The good news calls us to believe in Jesus Christ and to trust in him to do what he's promised to do. And what has he promised to do for those who put their trust in him? He promises to save your soul. We have to trust that the Lord Jesus Christ will do what he's promised to do, which is save your soul. And the good news that the writer of Hebrews celebrates is that better things are true for the church of God than were true for the church in the wilderness. Better things are true for the community of believers. Because those who have heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in him and have trusted in what he's promised, what is the wonderful reality that is true for us? If we have believed, he says we've entered into the rest. The promise still stands open, the writer of Hebrews says, to anyone who will believe, who will put their trust in Christ. But he says, as he speaks to the church of God, he says, but there are those of you who have already put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in him, and you trust him to do what he's promised to do, which is to save your soul. And the good news is, if you've trusted, you've entered into that rest. Isn't that good news? You're not standing on the threshold, maybe in danger of still missing it. That's why it's kind of vital that this word comes to us, because sometimes we can feel that way. I think I'll get there, but I'm not sure. What's going to save me from being like that wilderness generation that was standing on the threshold and failed to take that one ultimate step? Can't we... Fear like that? That I've come so far, but I'm at the end, right at the threshold, right at the edge of the promise, I'm going to fail. And what is the good news that the writer of Hebrews shares? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you've already entered into rest. That's what verse 3 tells us. For we who have believed enter that rest. Those who believe enter that rest. Isn't it wonderful there's no if there? There's no condition there. You may enter the rest. You might enter the rest. You may or may not enter the rest. What does it say? Those who have believed enter that rest. Now, maybe it seems strange to you that you hear that good news. Okay, if we believe, we've entered the rest. And then there's that swearing an oath and the anger that you won't. Right? Why quote that there? Were you thinking that as I read that? If not, you should have been. No, um, I've had more time to think about it than you have. Um, it, it's kind of a strange thing. We have believed have entered in that rest. And then here's the oath that you'll never enter my rest. Right? I swore an oath in my wrath. They shall never enter my rest. But what is the writer of Hebrews doing there? He's saying, what was the oath against the unbelieving? It was that they would not enter God's rest. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home to those who believed. You've entered God's rest. That was the warning that came up against them. You won't enter God's rest. Which is a bigger and broader concept than just the promised land. The promised land was a picture of God's rest. But it wasn't the true promise of God's rest. It was, as we might say, a type and shadow of the rest that was coming. But it was not itself the real full thing. It was a picture of that thing that was to come. And the thing the writer of the Hebrews is saying to us, if you've believed, you've entered the true thing. God's rest that he was promising, that rest that Canaan was just a picture of. Because there was a bigger rest held out to the people of God. And that's the picture of rest that the writer of Hebrews expands into. The picture of rest um, from chapter 3 and Psalm 95 and all of that work in the past, the writer of Hebrews is expanding on that to bring to bear the truth about God's rest. And he does that by taking us back, not to Psalm 95, but back further to Genesis chapter 2. And saying that's where you see the picture of God's rest. Now we've talked a little bit about that already, but because the writer of Hebrews is going back to it here, I want to go back to it. And If you're like me, you can't hear about God's rest enough and what it means for God's people to enter into his rest. It's the beautiful picture that we're given to us in Genesis chapter 2 where we really heard about what the rest of God represents. When we're looking at chapter 3, we're reminded of Psalm 95, reminded of the Israelites testing God in the wilderness. Is God with us or not? Uh, provoking his wrath by their rebellion. We thought about them being at Kadesh at the threshold, hearing the reports of the spies and saying, you know what, we should appoint a new leader, stone these guys, and, and turn around and go back to Egypt. We need to part ways with God and with his leaders and just go back. Um, it was all about rebellion. But chapter 4 of Hebrews introduces another text, not a test text about testing or quarreling or rebellion or rejection, but one about rest by referring back to Genesis 2, 2 and 3. That on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in the creation. Why is this important for the author of Hebrews to drive home? Because Canaan was a picture of rest, but it wasn't the true rest. They missed entering the picture of rest because of their unbelief. But the really sad thing was it was meant to picture to them a greater rest. That was not the ultimate rest that God's people were hoping for. The ultimate rest was introduced all the way back in Genesis 2. That was the rest that God's people were held out to them. God's own rest that stands outside of human history. The rest of eternity with Him. 
The rest that he entered into after he completed his work in creation. That rest that he gave us as a pattern and as a promise. That he finished his work and he entered into that eternal rest. And that there was a day coming when his people would finish their work and enter into his rest with him. And we talked about how Adam worked but failed to finish his work and failed to enter into rest. And so how can God's people find that rest? It's through the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world and did his work and entered into God's rest and brings his people with him into that blessed rest. Right? That which was to be a blessed work that was turned into an accursed toil by Adam's failure. Jesus comes into that cursed world, does his blessed work, and goes into his rest, both himself and for all of his people with him. The promise of rest still stands because of the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's the rest we always should have been looking for. Right? He's talking particularly to a, we, we talked about this, a Hebrew congregation, a principally Jewish congregation that's thinking about abandoning the promises and going back. It is struggling with the fact that life was easier under Judaism and maybe we all ought to just go back to it. And the writer of Hebrews has been taking pains to say there's nowhere to go back to. That was never the ultimate thing. It was always pointing forward to something else that was the ultimate thing. Um, And the writer of Hebrews is saying here, David understood that when he wrote Psalm 95. He understood that that was not the rest that was ultimate, the rest in Canaan. Uh, He understood God's people had not entered into it. Psalm 95 is still talking about that rest existing in the future, and it's being written by someone who is in the promised land. Right? You can see how for the wilderness generation, it was a future promise that never came to fulfillment. But David writing this psalm is in the promised land. And he's talking about a rest that still awaits the people of God. You see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's saying, if the, if the coming to Canaan was the ultimate thing, then how could the king of the promised land say, we've not yet entered rest? Right? If that was the ultimate thing, he'd be there. Right? There's a sense in which things were almost never better in the promised land than they were under David the king. And he was given rest from all of his enemies around him. He brought that kingdom to peace, and he still says there's a rest that waits the people of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home. That was never the rest that God's people were looking for. Because if it was, Joshua would have provided the people with rest. When the, when the next generation did enter in, then they would have been at rest. If that's what the rest was that was being talked about. If that was all that God had promised, then Joshua would have led them to rest. But what does verse 8 say? He didn't lead them into rest. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What is the writer of Hebrews trying to drive home for everybody listening. This was always the rest God was talking about. God's rest. That rest outside 
of history, that rest in eternity that God has entered into. That's always what God's people have been looking forward to, God's rest. And that's what's understood by meditating on the eternal Sabbath of God. It helps us to understand what the true rest is that's been secured by Christ and the true rest that we as his people are looking forward to. To finishing our work and entering into that rest. To stop being on a pilgrimage in this life and finally come home. It's a very strange existence that we lead in this world. It's strange not only because we feel all the time that we are sojourners and pilgrims. If you ever go to a foreign country or if you've come to America as a foreign country, you understand feeling not at home. Right? We, we prayed for Reverend Korcha. We gave offerings for Reverend Korcha tonight. You, I went to Romania this fall. You feel very much not at home in places where you're not from. But the Christian existence is a strange one because in some ways I felt alienated or felt like an alien going there because I didn't belong there. But there was another place that I do belong and that I've been. The strange thing for Christians is we actually belong to a place we've never been. We're strangers and aliens here, and where is our home? It's in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. There's a sense in which we're carrying around a passport for heaven, and it's never been stamped with a home entry. It's a strange thing to be from somewhere, but it's the place where we will find rest. You know, when we think about the glories of heaven, one of the glories that we should meditate on is we will walk in as God's people and finally say to ourselves, I'm home. This is the place that I belong. I've never felt this before. Um, That's one of the glories of, of being in Christ is that we will walk through the gates of heaven and say, oh, this is where I should have been. This is my country. This is where I'm from. Now I'm home. And now I know what it means to be home. It's something of the glory of what God has provided us in the rest He's given in Jesus Christ. To be with people who we understand perfectly and who understand us perfectly. It's the glory of that rest in heaven with our God, to be at rest with his people, to be about the business of heaven, to put away the business of this world and just be about the business of glory, which is the business of resting and rejoicing. Um, That sounds like a good home, doesn't it? Where just you rest and you rejoice, that's the business of heaven where we belong, and it's an unbroken eternity of rest. Um, We've entered into that rest by faith in Christ. We've not yet experienced the fullness of that rest. But that's what's been given us in Jesus Christ, the fullness of that rest, entering into that Sabbath day that has no evening or morning that doesn't come to an end 
unbroken fellowship with the Lord and with his people. A glorious day without end. Maybe you remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, when they first get to Narnia, they say, you know, the, the white witch's magic makes it always winter but never Christmas. Um, and as a kid, you understand just what a terrible curse that is, right? It's always winter but never Christmas. Um, if you can put it this way, in heaven it's always Christmas but never winter. It's always rejoicing but never over. It's a great party that never comes to an end where you don't eat too much or drink too much or regret what you're doing. It's only joy. It's only rejoicing. It's unbroken fellowship with the best kind of people to be transposed out of this world into fellowship with God and with his church forever. That's why this picture is given to us so vividly in this passage so that everyone who hears this would say, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. And if it's not that, I don't want it. And if I have to give something else, I'll give whatever else I need to give up to get that. Um, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to expose the folly of anyone who would say, I would, I'll take something else over that. I'll take something else over an eternity of rest and rejoicing and joy with our God and with his people. There's something else that I'm going to seek after. The writer of Hebrews is trying to say, there's nothing else to seek after. That's the best thing. And if you believe in Christ, you've entered into that rest. It's to motivate us to do everything possible to cling to that rest. And that's why the pursuit of rest is urged on the congregation in this passage. There are two exhortations in this passage, two commands, encouragements that are given, one in verse 11 and one in verse 1. Right? We must fear lest any of us should miss this rest. Right? When we hear about how good it is, you don't want to miss it. You want to take hold of it. Um, reverential fear is a good thing. The fear that keeps us from being unconcerned or lazy with respect to the future. These are ultimate important things, right? Um, there are people who don't understand that. Well, didn't you go to church this morning? Why would you go to church tonight? What's, what's the benefit? What's, what's the big deal? Well, if these things are so important, and they are, we should never have an excuse for being unconcerned about them or lazy with respect to them. One commentator said, no attitude is more dangerous to the church than that of unconcern or complacency. To continue to think that it's urgent, these things are life and death matters. I want to enter that rest. I don't want to miss it. And what does that help us do then? Cling in faith to Christ as the only one who can bring us into the rest of God. To see nothing as more important than clinging to the one who alone can bring us into that rest. It's an encouragement to us to continue to keep clinging to Christ. To be those who believe and to enter into rest. And why do we need that? Why can we not afford to become unconcerned or complacent about the Christian life? Because our enemies are so strong and we are so weak. 
We can get tripped up in so many different ways. And I think that was what was behind all of those Sabbath regulations that people would talk about. Sometimes we say, why do you get so deep into the weeds about what you can and can't do? It was all about don't become complacent. Don't become unconcerned. Don't think this day is nothing. This is vitally important that we be about the work of God. That we be hearing from the gospel, that we take hold of these promises, that we continue to be encouraged in our faith, that it might be strengthened, that we might cling to our Lord and Savior. If we really are reflective about the past failures and the present dangers, the need for preserving and persevering in the faith will keep us from becoming unconcerned or complacent. And this is the purpose of this day to keep those vital things before our eyes, to keep lifting up our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom alone is our hope so that we would cling to him and enter into rest with him. I think they were so, our our forefathers in the Reformed faith were so eager about talking what ought, ought not to be done and what ought to be done on the Lord's day because they were keenly aware of our weakness. Keenly aware of our weakness and the fact that we need to strive to enter the rest of God. And to remember that how do we enter that rest? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, clinging closely to our Savior, to trust in His promises, in His strength, in His faithfulness, to keep us and help us to endure the evil day and to overcome. And this is vitally important, the writer of Hebrews says, because the word of God lays open everyone. There's no place to hide. Um, There's a day coming when every heart will be exposed, right? Every heart will be open and exposed according to the word of God. We often talk about the, the word of God from this passage, but it's often disconnected from the broader argument. It's meant to press home the importance of clinging to Christ because the word of God cuts sharply and deeply. Nothing cuts, nothing is able to pierce the thoughts and hearts like the word of God. And it will discern what it finds. We We can kid each other about where we stand, but the Lord's word will expose where we really stand. Did we trust in his son, believe in him and rely on him, Or were we playing at church? Or were we playing at these things? Did we really hear the good news, believe, and trust ourselves to it? It will lay us open. It will discern what is found there. The edge of death and life are there in the word of God. There's no hiding from that judgment. One person said, The word renders one defenseless before God's scrutinizing gaze. Every creaturely covering and pretext is stripped away. There is no recess, no dark depth that is not wide open before him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, as a preacher, I don't know the heart. And I know that there are always gathered believers and hypocrites and unbelievers. Some unbelievers who will always be unbelievers, some unbelievers who will one day become believers, but you preach to a broad audience. And so you say, there will be no hiding from the word of God. It will expose where you are. And so then what is the calling? 
Don't be those who are disbelieving. Don't be those who have the promise of rest standing open before them and fail to cling to the Son of God by faith. But be encouraged that if you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and put your hope and trust in him, that's what the word will reveal at the last day. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ have no need to fear the piercing, scrutinizing gaze of the word of God. Because the Lord said, seek my face. And by faith, we said, your face, Lord, do we seek. The word said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when you will be saved. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. If you've done that, that's what the word will expose. That you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will hear that word that we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because those who trust in Christ will realize the promise that is held out to us in Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the glory of the rest that we enter into through faith in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. If you've not believed, believe in him and you'll have life in his name. If you have believed, you've entered into the rest. God's rest. And you enjoy it in part now what you will enjoy in fullness when the Lord Jesus comes again in glory. Praise be his name for bringing us into his rest. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, grant us peace. The peace of your rest. The peace of your Sabbath. The peace without an evening. All this most beautiful array of things you've made all so very good will pass away when all their courses are finished. For in them there is both morning and evening. But the Sabbath day is a day without ending. It has no setting for you have sanctified it with an everlasting duration. And after all your works which were very good, you did rest on the seventh day, although you had created them all in unbroken rest. And this so that the voice of your book might speak to us with the prior, with the prior assurance that after our works we may find rest in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has opened the way for us into the Sabbath of life eternal. Father, help us to fear lest anyone should miss this rest. Help us to make every effort to enter that rest solely by clinging in faith to the finished work of our great High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. May his rest be ours very soon, so that we may begin that joyous, eternal work of worship and adoration which is due to you, our great creator and redeemer. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.